and welcome back to Art Watch Podcast. I hope you've had a great week. I'm super excited to get back into being more consistent with these episodes. Um, if it sounds a little bit echoey, I just moved uh, spots in my house because the weather isn't so great this week and one of my dogs, Cleo, gets very anxious around crazy, rainy, cloudy weather. So you might hear them barking or whimpering in the background. I'll do my best to edit it out in post-production. Um, but if you hear the, uh, the uh, feed awkwardly cut out and jump forward, that's, that's probably what happened. So anyway, this week I'm going to talk about Guatemalan artist Carlos Merida and his life's work. So Carlos Merida was a Guatemalan artist of the 20th century. He was born in 1891 and died in 1984. Although he was Guatemalan, he practiced mostly in Mexico City. Um, and he's primarily known for his murals and prints. Actually, I would say mostly his prints. Um, most of the scholarship I've actually read about him is related to many of his um, prints. So if you have ever heard of Merida, you probably know that one of the first things scholars like to talk about is the fact that he is partially Maya indigenous of Guatemala. And it's something that's, like I said, brought up frequently. And a lot of scholars that I have seen, and even um, people of his time, like both artists, critics, and um, they equate a lot of his um, artistic production to his indigenous heritage, which is interesting, but also can be very problematic in that it flattens who he is both as a person and as an artist. And also it could serve as a flattening for um, indigenous culture itself. Carlos Merida was, um, as a he actually came from a well-off family and he originally wanted to be a musician, but he ended up going deaf in one ear or partially deaf in one ear. And he eventually switched over to painting after his father encouraged him to do so, to still have that sort of connection to the arts. Although painting was never his favorite, he claimed that he believed abstract painting was the best kind of painting because it wasn't rooted in um, figuration, I guess. Like he was, some of his texts, like many artists, that they contradict themselves. <laughs> So I'll bring in a quote in just a second, but let me finish giving you the background on who he is as an artist. So he ended up studying in Europe, like many artists of his generation. He learned the different styles that were happening um, in Paris and, and he studied, I believe, in Italy as well, in Spain for a little bit. So he was really intertwined with all of those movements, especially Cubism and Surrealism. And when he came back to Latin America, he pulled that into his practice. He, I wouldn't say he was friends with Diego Rivera by any means, but he practiced in the same circles as Rivera, Kahlo, Montenegro, uh, Roberto Montenegro, I should say, and many, many other artists. And because of his back and forth between Guatemala, Mexico, even the United States, as well as Europe, he gets pulled into the more Mexican city art scene, uh, primarily because he practiced mainly there. But many artists and art critics of Mexico City tried to claim him as Mexican rather than Guatemalan because of his long-standing career in the city itself. So there's this sort of taking him out of his Guatemalan context, adding him into the Mexican context, and it kind of complicates who he is as an artist because of the way that this happens. And because of his indigenous heritage at the same time in Mexico, there was the push for like the, the mestizaje and this like sort of 
forced connection to indigeneity and it's really really complicated probably too complicated to get into on this podcast but if you're interested definitely feel free to email me and i will be happy to give you some of the sources that i have looked at and that have talked about this but ultimately his identity is is kind of interesting because of the, the different realms that he practiced in. And also the fact that even though he is partially indigenous, he comes from an upper class family. And in Guatemala, there was this complicated like social context where if you made a certain amount of money or in this case, well, which is partially in this case, but his mother, I believe, was the one that was indigenous. And because she married somebody who would be considered white, Merida's father would be considered white in the Guatemalan context. It's this sort of like erasure and separation from like the the mother's indigenous roots. And so he would be considered what's called Ladino in Guatemala. So even though you might be of indigenous background because of the way either your family assimilated, you accumulated a certain amount of wealth, or there were many other reasons and it changed throughout time. But basically, he might not have actually been considered indigenous in Guatemala at the time he was practicing. And then when he goes to Mexico City, it's like this strategic marketing and it's a really interesting tension, I should say. And yeah, if you're interested, I would be happy to give you more sources or I can go into more detail in another episode. Um, just let me know. Email me at artwatchpodcast at gmail.com. Anyway, so he's practicing in all these different realms. Like many other artists, he has different periods in his work. So he starts out a little bit more figurative and then eventually he switches more into the abstract and you see this throughout the span of his career. He does pull a lot from folk tradition and the concept of folk is also really problematic. I, I feel like I keep saying that a lot, but there's so many different social ties to this and also racial ties to all of these terms that it's hard to situate in such a short period of time. But basically in the Mexican context, folk is considered works of the, well, of the post-independent period, I believe, mainly, that are produced by indigenous populations. But then there's the added complication that uh, these folk works were seen as like inherently like sort of pre-Columbian, even though there was like a blending of European and pre-Columbian traditions, but they were made by modern artists. And so that alone is kind of complicated and that's a very simplified form of what folk is. I think a good way to think about this, so if you've ever been to like a Mexican market and you see those really pretty like hand-painted mugs or handcrafted mugs that are painted like with floral patterns or you might see um, like roosters and things like that. And again, that's super simplified. I'm only pulling these because like this is what I see a lot in like my family and like other uh, friends who are Mexican, like their families and like what their families have. So if you think of like a Mexican market, that sort of thing, but like in a early 20th century context or something like that, that's what folk would be. And the term itself is kind of tricky because different scholars approach it differently. I don't like to call it as, anyway, I'm gonna, I'm getting sidetracked. So, <laughs> and then mostly in Mexico, you have folk pottery. So he's pulling from a lot of these themes, but also he's pulling from like the Guatemalan indigenous uh, cultures. So for him, the Maya Quiche, he has like a whole series about it and he even goes and studies it for a little bit. Lots of things happen, rather complicated, and I'm confusing you. Um, but yeah, I really want to focus mainly on Merida's like career as a whole, I guess would be the great 
introduction to him, especially since a lot of, um, well, not a lot of people, but yeah, kind of like a lot of people don't really know about him. If you aren't too familiar with Latin American art, or maybe if you're not really familiar with this period in Mexican slash Guatemalan art history, he does have like a fair amount of scholarship on him. So I, I can't say that he's not like an influential character by any means. He, I mean, he has like a whole museum dedicated to him in Guatemala. Like Guatemala absolutely loves him. And as we should love our artists, you know? But yeah, I think it'd be interesting to just really kind of resituate him within everything and just do more of an introductory on him. So anyway, he's frequently compared to Mexican artist Rufino Tamayo, who is also of indigenous heritage. However, Tamayo, I believe, is from Zapotec heritage. And both of them sort of have like this strategic marketing of their indigenous ties. And this isn't uncommon in this period because, again, like in Mexico City, there's this sort of like intense pull towards claiming indigenous roots. And this is due to the government, really, and like kind of differentiating themselves from the colonial oppressor of Spain and situating themselves as like indigenous, even though many of the artists that claim themselves indigenous really don't have that many roots or it's so far removed that they probably shouldn't have done so in the beginning or to begin with, but they did. And this is what we can talk about now as scholars. Anyway, I keep getting myself off track. I'm so sorry. Merida's main periods were again, the figurative, his surrealist phase in like the twenties to mid forties. And then finally, before, until his death, it was the geometric forms that characterize his work. He has his work in many collections across the United States, Latin America, and of course, you know, like in his own country, Guatemala. So in relation to Merida's own pr um, artistic production, and especially like as he gets, or, or as he matures as an artist, he steers himself more towards abstraction. And part of this is because he believed that abstract painting should be thought of as like a symbol of greater ideas, but also he favored it because in, he believed that the image was not limited to specific graphic representations and that these ideas could reach beyond the secluded shelters of one's subconscious. So again, Again, he's really pulling um, a lot from really surrealism. I mean, because a lot of his work, he talks about the subconscious and like the mind and all these other things. And so you can see that this, his like middle period really influenced his growth as an artist as he matured again. Um, and his early period, like many artists, like they begin in the figurative usually as they're training and becoming more prominent. And then they get introduced to all these different things. Um, but he would frequently uh, criticize his contemporaries that didn't participate in more abstract art because he believed that it was simple. And he also critiqued figurative art such as Nuevo Realismo and Mexican muralism as just politicized versions of academic art. So he became very critical of anybody that participated in that sort of field, style, whatever you'd like to call it. All right, so now I'm gonna go ahead and jump into some of his different works. One of his earlier pieces, Motivo Guatemalteco, um, was a rather large painting of a Guatemalan indigenous woman. Um, she's very flat and angular. So she still ha has this sort of, I guess, abstraction, but I hesitate to use that too much because you really don't see the geometric abstraction until later in his career. I think in this painting in particular, he's pulling more from the common primitivism that or primitivization that's happening. That in itself, like the term primitive is also very problematic because it has this underlying connotation that indigenous cultures or non-Western cultures were lesser than Western cultures. So specifically like European and United States cultures 
Um, so yeah, there's that whole problematic primitive, but this is what he's pulling from. And instead of pulling from African masks like European and American artists or United States American artists do, he's pulling from pre-Columbian and um, yeah, well, pre-Columbian traditions like many Latin American artists do because they have this, what they see as a unique history different from the rest of the world. Very brief, very simplified. It's actually much more complicated than that, but you get the gist. So he's pulling from these different traditions and it's still very figurative. This woman has very dark skin. It's deeply contrasted with the white, it's called a wheatville. Um, it's this cotton like blouse sort of thing. I don't really know what the translation is in English, but it's this blouse that has like usually on the collar, there's some sort of like floral design if it's more intricate. Sometimes they're just plain white. Um, actually, I think a good way to, if you have never seen or heard one before a lot of high well not high but fast fashion as well um if you they it's usually marketed as like the quote mexican folk um super problematic but think that and that's kind of what she's wearing there's this sort of um band around her waist and then what's presumed to be a skirt and it's blue there's like these geometric patterns on it the woman's face itself is very angular her her head shape is like an almond it's inverted um her eyes are very flat and her nose is also very angular, rather large, full lips. So it's ambiguous as to whether this woman is African descent or indigenous, but given the dress, she's probably more indigenous and just sort of these color blocks in the background. Very simplified, very quick visual analysis of the work, but you kind of get the idea. This is what he's doing more in his early uh, period. And then it shifts in his middle period where you get his uh, works like Estampas del Popo Vuh, which was in 1943, Dances of Mexico of 1937, and then Regional Mexican Dress of 1945. So Estampas del Popo Vuh is this portfolio of lithographs. Um, there is actually one in the Met collection and one at MoMA. Um, actually, I'm not sure if they're the same. I think they might be the same because I was looking at the rights to it and it looks like the same like artist society holds the rights, so it could be the same one. Um, anyway, that's like a very minor point, but um, basically it's this collection of 10 colored lithographs and he depicts scenes from the Popovul, which is like this oral tradition. It's the sacred text of the ancient Maya. Um, and again, he's pulling back at his indigenous roots and this sort of complicated notion of who he is as an artist, as a person, etc. And this is different from regional Mexican dress and dances of Mexico because it really is more like surrealist. It's, it's very like, I would say, hold on, let me backtrack a sec. It's like if you combine surrealism with abstraction because it's not really figurative, but it's also this sort of mystical setting, I guess. Guess. So it's like he's experimenting with both at the same time and kind of like formulating his own path. And in this collection, he has like an introductory text and he says that he depicts it in this manner because he believed that for him to depict literally what was happening in the Popovul, it would take away from the spiritual quality. Now it's important to note that the Popovul itself was an oral tradition of the ancient Maya and it was never actually written down until the post-conquest period. And you have to take into, into consideration that when this was recorded, it was recorded by Spanish friars. So of course there might be some miscommunications, whether that's intentional or unintentional, that's an argument for another episode, but it's this long standing history of like translation of an indigenous text that was 
based out of oral and performance rather than actual written text like we would think of like the Bible or um, the Quran, the Torah, those. But you get the point. Like it's this sacred text and he has this sort of interesting region or reasoning rather for depicting it in this sort of like mixed hybrid manner. And then Dances of Mexico in Regional Mexican Dress is also pretty fascinating because while it is figurative in Regional Mexican Dress, he sort of creates like this mask effect of the facial features of both the women, men, and children that are depicted in the uh, the portfolio. And he's almost, or actually I would say he is, he's pulling from like uh, Mesoamerican funerary masks, probably more so like the, like the ones that you'd see at Teotihuacan. And the eye sockets are just like empty and so is the mouth and the faces are kind of like this like ghostly hollowed out figure so while the dress itself is like intricate the figures themselves are flattened but you can tell there's also this tie to or this connection to race and class and while he is abstracting the figure it's still troublesome in the way that he does it because it's still pulling from that quote primitive ideology and it's this sort of simplification of cultures and of people. So we should still be critical of it. And even though he has this unique tie, I guess you could say, to indigeneity because of like his family history, um, but we can st- we should still be critical as scholars of this. And it's interesting to take Estampas del Popo Vul and regional Mexican dress in comparison to his own writings that suggest that, or actually that explicitly state, not suggest, that artist's work should be rooted in the abstract, but clearly he's not doing that. He's pulling from specific forms um, of the pre-Columbian period. And he wasn't the only artist to do this. A lot of a lot of Mexican artists and other Latin American artists, I'm again, I speak, I pull a lot from Mexico because that's my area of of interest, research interest, I should say, because I'm interested in all of it. But this is a really great example of what we should be doing as art historians and as students. So for all those students out there, what is the artist saying versus what are they actually doing? And how can you talk about that? Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm gonna... <laughs> I'm gonna go back and actually talk about it now. So I I just think that it's um, interesting or like important to critique because it is different. And even though like he's writing that artists like him or artists of his period should be working in the abstract. They should be working in things that aren't really pulling from anything specific. It should be going beyond the mind. Clearly what he's producing is grounded in an actual like reality. It's not this intense or explicit like subconscious. Like, I don't know. It's, it's weird to talk about, weird to talk about also because like I don't really research surrealism, but that's beside the point. Anyway, um, yeah, so it's, it's this deviation between what's being said and what's actually being done. And again, um, he's not the only artist to do this. Rivera, like, he has such a big, big, like, span of work, so it's so easy to pull from him. He is well known for pulling from Mesoamerican traditions, but what's problematic about him is that he's blending them all together, and he's typically titling it incredibly wrong, and a lot of my research actually, like, criticizes this, and, like, criticizes, like, not just him, but, like, other artists that do this, where they, they say they're pulling from, like, for example, the Aztec tradition. But really, they're pulling from like Teotihuacan or Maya, um, and so it they're distinct styles. It's it's how you would think. Like for example, like actually, I think a perfect example of this would be how we look at Greek, ancient Greek versus ancient Roman art. They're 
two similar cultures, and they're they have a similar like religious uh, pantheon of of deities. And I mean, I know the old joke is that like ancient Greece is like the big brother, Rome is the little brother, and the little brother wants to be exactly like the older brother. But they're distinct styles, and like this is how like we know there's many similarities. And the Romans often well, is that the point? There's a lot of similarities, but because of the distinct regional differences and like small like stylistic differences between the two scholars can differentiate. And this is how we know the differences between pre-Columbian works. Even though they all have very similar pantheons of gods and similar styles, they're also very, very distinct. So like if you look at an Olmec object, which if you've, if you've never seen Olmec, actually most of my generation probably has. So do you remember the Nickelodeon show Legends of the Hidden Temple? That's an Olmec head. I mean, it's a very like modern take on an Olmec head, but like the giant colossal Olmec baby head things. Um, yes, that's like a very unique style to the Olmec. And then if you look instead at like what's coming out of um, Tula, they're similar, but they're also completely different. So like some of the big uh, statues that you'll see on the temple, they have like a similar like, like facial features. Like they have like the fuller kind of cheeks, but the mouths and the eyes and the ears are treated completely different. And of course, this is also because there are big, big time differences between the two. And you have to take into account the development of cultures. Now, as far as like, what these Latin American artists are doing. It's partially due to the fact that we are still uncovering and still are uncovering a lot of objects from the pre-Columbian world. And this again is due to colonization efforts um, and specifically like the outright slaughtering and burying of indigenous people and indigenous culture. Um, but yeah, so it's not entirely on the artists because at the time that they were producing these works, they didn't know as much as we do now, but they knew enough to at least understand that these were different peoples, these were different cultures, and they're, of course, different regions in Mexico and in Latin America. And again, going back, I'm focusing mainly on Mexico because that's my, my area of interest. But yeah, so like in bringing it back to Merida in his regional Mexican dress, he is still taking into account like the region in which the, the figures are coming from. So like you'll see like different clothing that is from a certain, again, a certain region of Mexico. And it is aligned towards that. But the fact that he's taking like this funerary mask prominently from like Teotihuacan, like with the burial sites that you'll see, it's again, it's, it's blending past and present. And it's this sort of collapse of history and of the periods. And it's the it's still that same sort of blending of different cultures. Ultimately, it still goes back to the somewhat, some sort of attention to the culture, but also a 20th century addition or like lack of care towards like the differences in reality, like the, the real differences between pre-Columbian versus modern indigenous populations. And also like where those pre-Columbian works are coming from. And then shifting into his later part of uh, his career, um, one of his works that's part of the DMA collection is called Dances of Tlaxcala. And it depicts these two dancers, presumably female, 
female. Um, just I'm just gonna go ahead and throw out a wild guess there that these are probably women. Um, the background is this sort of cream yellowy color and the figures or what are supposed to be the figures have triangular shapes and a lot of like trapezoids, some curves to them. And then the colors are like this reddish orange, black and yellow on what might be the face or possibly the headdress. And then there's also green and I think I said purple. Did I say purple? Well, there's purple in there. Um, but yeah, so you can see this clear development in his art over his career. And in this specific one, I don't think he's pulling from like any sort of like pre-Columbian. Rather, he's just, he's instead pulling from what he's learned in Europe, specifically with abstract art and probably a little bit more, possibly more cubist. I don't think there's much cubist in this one, just specifically like the focus on the geometric forms. And maybe instead of um, saying he's pulling from cubism, possibly like Albers or other artists like that who focus on like the colors next to each other as well as again the geometric forms themselves but I hope this was like like a very quick decent introduction to Carlos Merida and and uh, the work that he produced. I know I didn't spend too much on his geometric period, but most of them kind of do the same thing. Although his work, that's part of the DMA. He actually uh, lived in Dallas for a bit, or specifically Denton. So shout out to my friend that lives in Denton. I'm not gonna say her name on air because I didn't get permission from her first, but um, yeah, he taught, I think, I think it was UNT, uh, University of North Texas. And yeah, so it's pretty neat to like see how some of like Latin America's like, prominent artists practiced in Texas and they taught there and they they did commissions and things like that. Um, I know that's like a really random thing to say, but I just, I find it fascinating when you learn about artists and you see the impact that they had on the on places that you've been or that you live in. And um, yeah, that's just like a, my own sort of personal side. But I hope this was a fun introduction or at least an informative introduction to Carlos Merida. If you would like for me to go more in depth on some of the works where he's pulling from pre-Columbian, if you'd like me to compare him to other artists that do the same thing or similar approaches to like appropriating Mesoamerican culture, go ahead and email me artwatchpodcast at gmail.com and I would be happy to take your suggestions. If you aren't already, follow me on Instagram and and Twitter at Artwatch Podcast. And I'm super excited to announce my very first patron shout out to Caitlin D. Thank you for becoming my very first patron and I'm so excited and if you would also like to become a patron of Artwatch um, I have a link in the bio of this and you can click I have a bunch of different levels each one has something different and um, if you do the six dollar a month one or uh, more you'll actually get a shout out on each episode so check it out and I greatly appreciate it and then yeah I think I think that is it I will see you next week hope you have a great weekend